0: All right. If you want to take a look just at your packet real quick, just to remind you of what we've got here. Uh, The very, very back page is going to be a list of kings that we're going to be going through. And I've added one uh, in in the on the right hand side is obviously the kingdom of Judah, which is normally known as the southern kingdom. The legitimate kingdom, if you will, Uh, this is all all of these kings would be would fall under the line of David, the lineage of David, and so uh, in in the line of Judah, and this begins all the way at the top right after Solomon and goes all the way down to um, Zedekiah when Babylon will come in and and capture them uh, and haul them off into captivity, and then on the left hand side you have the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, which is. Ten of the tribes, uh, basically, that are kind of formed together, um, all of them except for Judah and Benjamin, basically, make up the kingdom of Israel in the north. It's an illegitimate kingdom, but it was established by God as punishment on the Jews, if you remember that. And, um, and so we've gone, we've made our way, we, we're actually making some pretty decent progress here, all right, through this list of kings of the north. And so we have, um, we've made it past Jer- Jeroboam II, and we're actually in that line right there at Uzziah in the kingdom of Judah that we're kind of closing out the chapters on, on his life when Isaiah really begins his ministry right there in that, that year that he dies. And then we're going all the way down and, and probably over the next few weeks we'll eventually get to the end of the northern kingdom when Assyria will march in and will haul them off. And so if, you, if you'll remember, th- those are the, the big kind of time markers in Israel's history that we're just trying to put in our heads and just hold uh, firm is 931 BC, which is when the two kingdoms split. They were formerly one kingdom under David and Solomon. And then due to the sin of Solomon, they split um, when Solomon's son Rehoboam took the throne in 931. So the two kingdoms split there. You've got Rehoboam in the south who becomes king, and Jeroboam the first who becomes king of the north. So that they're split. That's a huge date, 931. 722 is another big date in Israel's history. That's when that northern kingdom that split off from the south, that's when it's going to be taken off into captivity. And so we're going to be somewhere in the 730s tonight. So we're, we're getting really close to that 722 date where Assyria comes in and hauls off the northern kingdom. And then... Um, Five five 586 B.C. is when the southern kingdom is going to be hauled off into captivity by Babylon. And so if you can just remember those, those three dates, it can help kind when of, when you read the Old Testament, at least help put things on a timeline. I, I've always found timelines to be really helpful, but maybe you do, maybe you don't. Um, but in the middle, we're putting together the prophets as we encounter them, as they come and preach and basically prophesy to the north and south. Uh, We're putting them in their place, and I think that's also really helpful to do as you think about um, what they are prophesying about, what is the meaning of the things that they say and to the people that they say them to. It's really important to kind of put them in a timeline because it it helps to interpret what the prophets are saying in the Old Testament. It it, it can be really hard, I think, one of the hardest things is to read the prophets, and so reading them in their context is really helpful. We're going to see that tonight. We're going to see that with a really famous passage that you're probably all familiar with. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a child, and you will call his name Emmanuel. Um, That passage occurs in Isaiah chapter 7, and we're going to look at that in great detail. But first, before we get to that, let's set up the context that's going on in Israel's history in order to understand why Isaiah actually says what he says in Isaiah chapter seven. So, as just a matter of review, let's take just a couple of things that we talked about last time. Remember Uzziah, who is also called Azariah. It's really difficult when you got a bunch of kings and then they got multiple names. All right, they can't stick with one name. But um, Uzziah, who's also called Azariah, remember he co-reigned with his father Amaziah. So they also got similar names to their dads, which also is, is not very helpful. But um, he is going to sit on the throne at the same time as his father during a portion of his reign. And remember, Amaziah comes back into town after being held captive, and the people run him off and eventually kill him. They make Uzziah uh, king. He is put on the throne by the populace, not just because of the death of his father, like normally kings, uh, kings did. And Uzziah, for the most part, was really pretty good. He built a, a sizable army. He built a lot of like machines and weapons and things that would crawl up the sides of walls and throw you know rocks into enemy territory and you know, destroy enemy territory and things like that. And so he did a lot of really good things. And what we find in the text of Scripture, and especially in the book of Chronicles, is it tells us, look, as long as Uzziah continued to follow the Lord, the Lord blessed him in all that he did. And so it was when Uzziah actually overstepped his bounds and uh, acted foolishly that the Lord brought him down to his, where, his real level, where he should be. And what was it that Uzziah did? Remember, he walked into the uh, temple, and he started making sacrifices in the temple. And then he was warned by the priest, look, you can't be in here. You can't do that. I know you're king, but you can't really do that. He didn't listen. He stayed in there, and the Lord struck him with leprosy so that he could never come near the temple again. And so. He basically dies in exile with leprosy, essentially, which sort of brings him down a little bit in our book, right? I mean, he does good things, and he's called out for the positive and the, the, the uh, God-honoring way that he ruled as king, but then he stepped in it at the end, and that really kind of, that kind of bit him. And then you got, so that was in the southern kingdom. That's Uzziah in the southern kingdom. Then you turn to the northern kingdom, and you have Jehu... And his sons, who had been on the throne since 841, but finally one of Jehu's great-great-great-great-grandsons, Zechariah, steps on the throne, and he is ousted in a matter of just a month or so, and he's overthrown and killed. And that starts this sort of revolving door of, of kings on the throne in Israel. And as we get closer to that date of 722... You're going to see that more and more, is that the kings are judged in a swifter fashion. They're taken off the throne. Um, They lead their people in idolatry more, and more and more prophets are sent to the north and to the south. The north is going to be kind of a warning for the south that, hey, this can actually happen to you too. Um, And so you're going to see a lot of prophecies uh, from some of the prophets that are saying, look, there's going to be a day where, the Lord just dissolves Israel altogether, but he will rebuild the tent of David. There's always that kind of prophecy towards the end. So with that in mind, let's think about what's happening here in the context of the Isaiah 7 passage, which is where we want to we camp out for the most part of tonight. Um, but let's think about what's going on here. So we have a bit of a nightmare when it comes to the biblical text of, like, how do we actually make sense of the years that kings reign? This is not an insignificant thing. When when the Bible says uh, a king reigned for X number of years, well, you want to go, here's the date the king died, here's their son, they took the throne, they reigned for 12, 15, 16 years, however long they reigned, and then that puts us at XYZ year, right? That's how you'd want to be able to do it. I'm afraid it's not that clean cut. It looks that clean cut in the Bible. You just read it and you would say, well, it's pretty clean cut, but it's, it's, it's actually not. They're, they're, they're doing some funny things with the years, and we'll take a look at what some of that is. First, um, there is a king by the name of Pekah. He's going to be really important. He comes to reign over Israel in the 52nd year of Uzziah, which puts him on the throne in 740. The 52nd year of Uzziah would be the year Uzziah dies. He reigned for 52 years. So he dies in 740. We know that really beyond the shadow of a doubt. It's one secure date we've got in biblical history. So if he takes the throne in the 52nd year of Uzziah and he reigns for 20 years, that would mean that he was off the throne in, can you do your math? 740 minus, it'd be 720, right? Can you see, yeah, can you see the problem with that year. First of all, we got a whole nother king to put on the throne before Israel is taken off into captivity. Well, that doesn't really make much sense, does it? If a king is just there all by himself when the whole northern kingdom gets hauled off into captivity, just what, what is he just sitting there? I don't know. I, mean, I don't know. But obviously that's not what happens. So how do we make sense of the Bible saying he took the throne, he reigned for 20 years, and he took the throne in the 52nd year of Uzziah, which would have been 740. How do we make sense of that? Well, he did reign for 20 years. The Bible tells us that. We're, we can be pretty confident about 20 years. And you should hear some of the, some of the solutions people come up with. I mean, everything under the sun It's pretty crazy. But he did obviously reign for 20 years. The Bible says that. And he's, but he is assassinated in 732. All right, now what's happening here? Well, there was a king in 752 by the name of Menachem. Remember him? This was a couple of times ago. Menachem takes the throne. And the Bible says something that's really interesting about Menachem. And he says they said it in 2 Kings 15:16. Look at this. At that time, Menachem sacked Tifsa and all who were in it and its territory from Tirzah on because they did not open it to him. Therefore he sacked and ripped open all the women in it who were pregnant, which is obviously heinous. Yeah, right? Awful. The, the point is that this and another passage in 2 Kings actually tells us that Menachem was from Tirzah. And that's, it's just a little line in the text. You don't even pay attention to it. You just go right past it. It's actually incredibly significant because it tells us not only was he from Tirzah, but he reigned from Tirzah. Where's the capital of the northern kingdom? Bonus points. Where the other king is. From. Where the other king is. Yes, that's exactly where it is. <laughs> it's in Samaria. The, northern, the capital of the northern kingdom is in Samaria. But we see here Menachem is from Tirzah and he's reigning from Tirzah. You see, the you remember Tirzah at all? You won't because you've slept since then. Tirzah was the former capital of the northern kingdom. So there is clearly what's happening here is a faction of people in the north who are pro-Tirzah. We want Tirzah to be our capital. And then there's a faction of people that, the vast majority of people, that want Samaria to be the capital. And so probably what's going on We're not entirely sure, but a really good solution for this, and I think it's true, is that uh, Menachem, being from Tirzah, reigned from Tirzah, and another king takes the throne in 752 in Samaria, a man by the name of Pekah. And he reigns for 20 years, which would mean he's assassinated in 732. Make sense? See what's happening here? But the biblical text points to his consolidation of the throne happening in 740. So once 740 came, um, both uh, Menachem and his line are off the throne, and Uzziah is is obviously off the throne in the south, and Pekah is reigning on the throne uh, with a consolidated northern kingdom in 740, and he reigns all the way until 732, giving him a total reign of 20 years. Does that make sense? I don't go too much into chronology because there's tons of different things that are happening here. In the south, it gets pretty hairy as well, and I won't go to all the details of it, but just enough to set us up for um, Isaiah chapter 7. Jotham is the king of Judah, so we're looking in the south now. So that was the northern kingdom. Now, in the south, we've got Pekah on the throne in the north, and he'll be on there till 732. In the south, Jotham is king of Judah, and he actually reigns from seven fifty, all the way up through what we think is probably seven thirty one, um, and he comes to the throne while Uzziah his father is still alive. Why would he be on the throne when Uzziah is still alive? Got any idea? Because he had been, yeah, cursed with leprosy. So Uzziah's dying for the last ten years of his of his 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 reign he's in his palace and can't really come out his son Jotham is sitting on the throne for the last 10 years of his dad's ministry and then Uzziah died and then he reigns really until 731 although he gets he he really puts his son on the throne at 735 his son was a man by the name of Ahaz do you remember Ahaz you know who Ahaz is He's going to be the king of the south in Isaiah chapter 7. When Isaiah comes to him and says, uh, a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, he's talking to the king Ahaz at the time. All right, Ahaz is on the throne and he's ruling, by all accounts, with his father uh, uh, Jotham. So Jotham is really technically kind of off the throne at 735, but he lives on. Until seven thirty one, where they're sort of reigning equally with one another, all right. Now, Ahaz here's the the Ahaz is really difficult, and we're going to find this out over the next couple of weeks. Ahaz is 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 really difficult because he makes this sharp turn from everybody that's really come before him. He actually begins, uh, you know, with sort of some military successes, but he starts sacrificing his kids. In, uh, yeah, in, 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 um, in, um, I, the name just escaped me now. Anyway, not the kid, not the Valley of Kidron, but um, help me out. What's right there? You got it? Gana. yeah, yeah, the Valley of Hinnom. Yeah, so w- <laughs> the reason that I was going there was because um, if you, if you remember this, there's two, right, there's the Temple Mount and then there's two valleys, right? There's the Kidron Valley right here that, just opposite of that is the Mount of Olives. Then there's the Valley of Hinnom right here, right? Where it kind of forms a V right around the Temple Mount. The Valley of Hinnom is where a lot of trash was burned. Why was a lot of trash burned there? Because kings like Ahaz used to sacrifice their kids there. And sacrifice them to pagan gods. And Ahaz is going to kind of fall into that trap because of Assyria, essentially. And we'll see that in a few weeks. But, but essentially why that's important is because when Jesus uses the term hell, what does he use? The valley of Hinnom, or Gehenna. He calls it Gehenna, which is the place of the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why is there weeping and gnashing of teeth? Because that's where child sacrifice has gone on in Israel's history. So that's where people are burned. That's also where the only thing fitting to, to happen there is for trash to be burned. Because you can't really use the spot where... Kids were sacrificed. So, um, does that make sense? Tracking with me? No, Ahaz was not good. He was not good. He, he, he's, to some extent, I think he, um, sorry, I'm back. Yes, Ahaz was good. the people, though, continue in those sort of pagan ways. <laughs> um, I might have just said the wrong king when I said Ahaz. i got to think about it. Let me come back to that. Okay, okay. so I'm sorry about that. Um, let's so, confused. Confused. Yeah. <laughs> let let's let, let me just get back to reading the Bible here. Second Chronicles 20, 27, one to nine. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Jotham was twenty five years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for sixteen years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah had done, except he did not enter the temple uh, of the Lord, but the people still followed corrupt practices. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord and did much building on the wall of Ophel. Moreover, he built cities in the hill uh, in the hill country of Judah and forts and towers and wooded hills. He fought with the, the king of the Ammonites and prevailed against them. And the Ammonites gave him that uh, Gave, gave him that year a 100 talents of silver and 10,000 cores of wheat and 10,000 uh, 10, of barley. The Ammonites paid him the same amount in the second, in second and third years. So Jotham became mighty and because he ordered, uh, he ordered his ways before the Lord, his, uh, his God. Now the rest of the acts of Jotham and all his wars and his ways, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of, the Is- of Israel and Judah. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and Jotham slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David, and Ahaz, his son, ruled in his place. Now that I'm thinking about it, I am right. I think Ahaz is, Ahaz is uh, an evil king, and he, he does follow after the Assyrian practices, and he does begin sacrificing his kids. It was Jotham that I was thinking about. Uh, I second-guessed myself, and I shouldn't have done that. Um, Um, that was Jotham that I was meaning there, not Ahaz. That, I, I looked at that sentence, and I was that's what caused me to second-guess myself. That's poorly written. I'm sorry about that. Um, All right. Far more important uh, to Judah's foreign policy, though, is this ominous threat that's going to develop now in Jotham's last years, but it's while Ahaz is on the throne. So let's, let's just take a second to survey biblical history right now. We've got Ahaz who is on the throne, Jotham, by all accounts, is is kind of not talked about anymore in the scriptures, um, but is still alive at this point. Ahaz is mostly reigning in his place or reigning on the throne with him. And you have in the northern kingdom, in Israel, Pekah is on the throne, and in Damascus, Rezin is on the throne. Now, the reason those are important is because they come into play in Isaiah chapter 7. Now, at about this time, there is... Uh, Assyria out to the east that is mounting a a significant army. And they're coming in, they're eventually going to come in, and they're going to conquer the northern kingdom. But while they're out here breathing threats, what are the kings of, of Judah, of Israel, and of Damascus doing? Well, they're really nervous, right? Because here is this kingdom out here that no one can stop, who's mowing over territory after territory after territory. And so what are you going to do? So you're on the throne of one of these little puny kingdoms, what are you going to do? You're going to come together. You're going to come together in a union so that you because you're stronger together than you are individually. He's going to either mow through you individually, or you're going to come together, join forces and so that you can withstand the Assyrian army. All right. So they want to form this co- coalition and part of the the problem for both Pekah and Rezin, so the northern kingdom and Damascus, Part of the the problem for them is that Ahaz doesn't want to play along. He doesn't want to get along with them. So they come after him, and they tell him, Look, if you don't play along, we're going to take a king, and we're going to put him on your throne, a puppet king, that will come and join forces with us, and then we can use the southern kingdom's army to go against Assyria and actually fight against them. So it's within that context, really, that, that, that chapter 7 happens. Ahaz, though, not only refuses to, to join into their little uh, collaboration, but he also want, he turns to Assyria, and he starts collaborating with the Assyrians in order to be saved from them. He even picks up their gods, which obviously is going to lead him to the sacrifice and things like that. Um, in the future. So with that in mind, I want to read Isaiah chapter 7, okay? And so let's think about it in this context, and then we can get to the famous passage in, in 714 and take a look at what is being said there. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. Remember, they're wanting to put somebody else on the throne. They couldn't quite muster enough army to, uh, uh, or forces to get in there. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim. Syria, that's Damascus. Ephraim is another name for the northern kingdom of Israel, right? So those two are coming together. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and She'er-Jeshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Remaliah." "...because Syria with Ephraim, Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is Resin. and within 65 years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people." And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Okay, let's pause right there. What is being said through Isaiah to Ahaz, king of Judah? What is being said to him? Don't be afraid, and there's more to it. What's the other part of that passage? There's a lot of names and a lot of cities and a lot of all kinds of stuff in there that can get really confusing. But what is the nuts and bolts of the message? Yeah. These these two kings that are coming for you, they're not even going to be a people in a matter of time. Trust me when I say this, this is not going to happen. And so Ahaz is scared, right? These two armies are coming after them and Ahaz is scared. Probably rightfully so. At least you and I probably would be. And Isaiah's message from the Lord to him is, don't get in league with them, don't bow down to them, just be quiet and stay still, do absolutely nothing, and I'll take care of these people. Clear? Seems pretty straightforward. Again the Lord spoke, look at verse 10, again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God, let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. All right, what is the sign? Do you, what do you think the sign is going to do? What's it going to do for Ahaz? Why does he tell him to ask for a sign? To encourage him, to be, to be reassured, right? That nothing's going to happen. Okay, verse 12. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Is that good or bad? Why is that bad? Well, you're not supposed to put the Lord to the test. Do not test the Lord your God, Miss Lynn. Except <laughs> when God says test me, then to not test Him would be disobedience. So what Ahaz says here seems noble on the surface. I will not put the Lord to the test. But Isaiah says, "Are you now? You are putting the Lord to the test by not testing Him." Ironically, verse thirteen, and he said. Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to, refu- uh, when he knows how to refuse uh, the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come uh, since the, the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Okay, pause for, right, for just a second. let Let's Back up. So the sign that Ahaz is going to get is what? That's what I thought you were going to say. That's what I was hoping you would say. Well, that doesn't seem like such a great encouragement to Ahaz, who's going up against two kings if he's got to wait 700 and something years in the future for the sign to be confirmed, right? So is this the point where you're like, then what on earth is happening? Good. Okay, I'm glad you're there. Um, Do what? Okay, so don't jump ahead of me, Timothy. I don't want to know if you know the answers. Uh, <laughs> so, okay, so uh, Isaiah is, is, is here telling Ahaz, look, you, you're not going to ask for a sign. The Lord's going to give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. You'll call his name Emmanuel. And then he says, before, before he knows to choose the good and not the evil, which means before he's, whatever, 12, 13 years old, these two kings are going to be gone, right? Well, if this is Jesus long before, bef- not before he chooses good and evil, before he's even born, these two kings are going to be gone. Well, that doesn't really make sense. But then he says, look at verse 17, he says, the Lord is going to bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days that you haven't seen since uh, since Ephraim, the northern kingdom, departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. So, in, in, even though these two kings are going to be gone, and you can breathe a sigh of relief from these two kings. They're going to be wiped off the face of the earth. Assyria is going to come after you. So it's like the Lord through Isaiah is saying, "Don't worry about these two kings. They're not going to kill you. Assyria is." And uh, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, it's so encouraging, right? He's like, "Oh, great! This is this is awesome." Um, and so he goes on to detail some more judgment in verse eighteen. In that day, the Lord will. "'Whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt, "'and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria, "'and they will all come and settle in the steep ravines "'and in the clefts of the rocks "'and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. "'In that day the Lord will shave with a razor "'that is hired beyond the river "'with the the king of Assyria, "'the head and the hair of the feet, "'and it will sweep away the beard also.' In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds, for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, every place uh, where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns, and all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle and uh, are let loose and where sheep tread. So, essentially, there's going to be bad days coming, all right, and your judgment is in the future, but the point is that it's not from these two kings. You needn't worry about these two kings because the virgin's going to conceive and bring forth a son. So. In Isaiah 7:14, where he makes this sort of uh, prophecy, the Lord speaking to the king of Ahaz, he's challenged him to ask for a sign to confirm that God's promise that He would not destroy the two, uh, would not destroy him by the two kings from the lands to the north that were currently threatening uh, Judah. That would be uh, Rezin and Pekah. Well, Ahaz protests, obviously, as we've seen. He protests that he's not going to test the Lord, but Isaiah. Speaking for God uh, is basically saying he's testing his patience and what he gets to is that famous prophecy of an imminent birth of a child to be born to a young woman of marriageable age. Now, why do I say that instead of the virgin? There's a, the word that's used here for the for virgin in Isaiah is a very ambiguous term. It's a very loose term and it can mean everything from a virgin to a woman of marriageable age, a woman who is chaste, a woman who might actually be married but hasn't had kids yet, all right? Or even, even it could be a woman who has had kids but is just chaste to her husband. She's not a, whatever you want to say, um, prostitute or whatever. And so um, the term is really loose and it includes all of those possibilities. The ESV jumps in here with the word virgin, which is not really helpful for us, I don't think, for the context, because it's anticipating Matthew coming in the future. Matthew's going to do something completely different here with this text, and there's a reason why he does it. But the point is that there's going to be this imminent birth that's coming that's going to be a sign of comfort to Ahaz that Isaiah's word to him is true. So this is the test. This lady is going to give birth to a son. And we'll call his name Emmanuel. Why will we call his name Emmanuel? Because the sign of this kid means God is with you. And you're not going to be overcome by these two kings. In the context, that's what is happening. Right? We all agree that makes sense of what's happening in the context. Okay. Now, um, obviously before he's old enough. Uh, these two kings are going to be laid waste. So who is this child? Immediately we jump to Jesus. But wait, just wait. It's not Jesus, uh, uh, at least in the context. It's probably Isaiah's own son. You ready for this? Meher Shalal Hashbaz. <laughs> Which is a name that I would encourage some parent to use one day. Meher Shalal Hashbaz, yeah, Meher Shalal Hashbaz, which means quick to the plunder and swift to the spoil. Um, It's a great name, Meher Shalal Hashbaz. So the reason we know this is because in the next chapter, in chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, this is what we read. This is Isaiah speaking, and I went to the prophetess and she conceived and bore a son. Okay, so if you in the previous chapter have the woman of marriageable age will conceive and give birth to a son, and then in the next chapter you have, and I went to the prophetess and she conceived and bore a son, you're probably looking at a connection, right? <laughs> that's, that's probably what we're looking at here. And so she conceived and bore a son, and the Lord said to me, call his name Shalal Hashbaz, For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, in the previous chapter it was before he knows uh, right or wrong, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. So, and it it obviously, the the language of 8, 3 to 4, echoes very closely with that 7, 14 to 15 that Isaiah is prophesying to him. And we're probably looking at the fulfillment of that prophecy being Maher hair shall all hash All right. So when you look at Isaiah seven fourteen, they say we all know what the fulfillment of that is, and everybody wants to say Jesus. You can stand up and say, "My hair shall all hash <laughs> Is is the, the fulfillment of that uh, passage? Okay. So even in verse fifteen, verse uh, seven fifteen, um, he describes how. The wealth of Samaria and Damascus is going to be taken off and, uh, and destroyed and, um, uh, and how it's going to be uh, plundered before the child can say my father or my mother which we see in 8.4 um, and then we see in 8.8 and 8.10 he's called Emmanuel and God with us which basically re- reaffirms to Ahaz the sign that was given to him from uh, heaven that uh, God is is with him. Now. Mahershalal Hashbaz? Well, is that me? Is it me? Am I good? We're good now. Okay. Um, why is he called Mahershalal Hashbaz? Well, he's not supposed to be named Emmanuel. Um, he is. He is Emmanuel. Oh. Yeah. He is colloquially referred to as Emmanuel because he is the affirmation of the sign that God is with us. But what you're doing right now is exactly what Matthew does. Which is, look back into this passage and goes, something more is going on here than simply an affirmation of a child to, uh, to Ahaz. Here's the reason why. Because Isaiah keeps going and he gets into chapter 9. And when Isaiah gets into chapter 9, Everything changes. So in Isaiah chapter nine one to seven, he says, "But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish." In the former time, he brought into contempt in uh, in uh, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, when is Isaiah talking about now? He's talking about well. He says right now. He says the latter time. Okay. So if we're in the New Testament, being where we are now, we know he's talking about Jesus, but but if we weren't, and we were just in his day, we would say, well, he's talking about in the latter time. When is the latter time? Well, it's the days of a king that's coming from the line of David, right, who's going to sit on the throne. That's, that's the latter days. The last days, the latter days, there's a king coming from the line of David who's going to save this mess, all right? And so here is uh, uh, Isaiah talking about the latter time, Uh, He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people, you've probably heard this part before, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light light has shone, has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of the peace there will be no end, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So it's at this point in the passage where... Isaiah turns, and he starts talking about a time to come. So Ahaz, here's going to be a sign to you. The virgin's going to conceive, the young woman is going to conceive and give birth to a son, and you're going to call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's going to be an affirmation of a sign to you. But, and and then I'm going to judge you with the king of of Assyria, and I'm going to judge you hard, all right? You're going to be taken out. The people of Israel, and the, the, of the north and the south, they're going to be pretty much no more. But, that's not the end. Then there's going to be a day. Well, in chapter 8 we get, here's the sign. It happened, right? But then, it's, it's not gonna, that's not the end. In chapter 9 we get, but wait, there is a day coming in the future when the king, uh, kingdom of David will be upheld again. When there will be a king coming from the line of David, and he even, he even says there, on the throne of David, that's in verse 7, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So there is a day coming when there will be a king from the line of David who rules over this place and who corrects this mess. And what will he be called? Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Mighty God. That's not Meher Halal Hashbaz. No, th- that is God with us, right? B- by di- that is literally God with us. So, here is this, um, the birth of a wonderful child who's described as Almighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. He rules on David's throne. He establishes universal justice forever. There's no earthly king that's, been, that's fulfilled this. So you see what Isaiah is doing is saying, here's your near fulfillment. Here's what's going to happen in the near time. Here's what here's it actually happens in chapter 8. But wait, here's long-term fulfillment. So what is Matthew doing then? Because Matthew comes in in Matthew 122 and 23, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So, first of all, we can see one thing that Matthew does is he looks at this son that's going to be born in the immediate future, and he goes, wait a second. It's no coincidence that Isaiah uses a term that can be applied to a woman who no one would think it was weird that she had a son, and then it could also be applied to in this case, a virgin who would conceive and give birth to a son. Um, And why does he do that? Well, he does that because he sees uh, 4, 13 to 16, leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them light has dawned. What, it, what part of, of Isaiah's prophecy is Matthew quoting from there? That's in chapter 9. And he's taking chapter 9 of Isaiah and he's applying it directly to Jesus. And he's going back into, at the beginning and going back into Isaiah chapter 7. And he's going, Look, just as Ahaz had fulfillment in his day, that the Lord was with him, that the Lord was not going to let him die. So also, it is no coincidence that we have a Savior being born of a virgin who is coming to actually deliver his people from their sins. And it's a testament, first of all, of the reality that God is literally with us in flesh and in blood. He is with us. Second, it's also a testimony to us that the enemies that surround us, namely sin and death, are not going to prevail over us. So Matthew is going back into that passage in Isaiah and saying, look, where does this end? It ends in chapter 9 with a king sitting on the throne of David. And and Matthew, it's very clear, as we've seen on Sunday mornings, Matthew is setting up the throne of David to be ultimately fulfilled by Jesus. And so he's going back and he's saying, look, the fulfillment of chapter 9 is none other than Jesus. He moves into this land which tells you the land of of Naphtali and the land of Zebulun. On them light has dawned. He moves into this land which fulfills, which shows a unique fulfillment of chapter 9. But also, if you go back into chapter 7, it's not without coincidence, or, or not just mere coincidence, that the virgin does conceive and gives birth to a son, and we call his name Emmanuel, which literally means God with us. So, do you see how Matthew is coming back into the terms and going, look, this is intentional by the Lord. One thing that you have to understand about scriptures, and, and if, you, if you study them closely enough, I think you find this time and time again, they testified to this over and over again, is that the words that are used are with intention. So, what you what tend to find, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, is when he goes back and he quotes passages from the Old Testament, he sees ambiguity in the text of Scripture. There's a word uh, in the Hebrew, Alma, which means a a woman of marriageable age, but it can also mean virgin, and it's not a coincidence that God put that in here, and now what do we see? But that his son is born, Emmanuel, God with us, born of a virgin, coming to deliver us from sin, which is the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter Uh, 9. Say again? Exactly. Exactly. So, so this passage, in other words, is Isaiah going to Ahaz, what he says to him fulfills a, a unique setting for Ahaz, but then leaves enough ambiguity that the New Testament authors are going, that was part what Timothy said earlier, that was partial. This is fulfilled. What was partial in the Old Testament is fulfilled in the New. And if you go back and you read through the Gospel of Matthew, which is probably my favorite gospel, um, you'll see Matthew do several times um, in, he'll, he'll say, and this was this was to fulfill what was written in the scriptures. So one situation that comes to mind is, remember, Jesus is sent to Egypt, and he goes to Egypt and, uh, because Herod is trying to kill all the babies, right? So they pick up and they go to Egypt. Uh, Joseph is warned, warned in a dream, and so they go to Egypt, and they're told, okay, now you can come out of Egypt. Uh, and he, Matthew actually uses the same words of Moses' calling in the desert. But then he says, when they came up out of Egypt into the, into the, the north, into Israel, this was to fulfill what was written by the prophet Hosea in Hosea 11.1, out of Egypt I called my son. Well, when you go back and read Hosea 11.1, out of Egypt I called my son is, is literally talking about the children of Israel coming up out of the land of Egypt. But what Matthew is showing is that Jesus is actually retracing all the steps of Israel. He's doing what Israel did, quite literally. I mean, physically walking through the exact same steps that Israel walks through. Because what does he do? He comes up out of Egypt, and he settles in in this land, in this region. And then what does he do? Well, he goes into the waters of baptism. Passing through the waters of baptism, where does he go? Out into the wilderness for 40 days. So, and, and what does he do out in the wilderness for 40 days? There he faces the temptations of the devil, and he does not succumb to them like the children of Israel did. He passes the test. Then he goes back into the land of Israel and conquers the Holy Land with the gospel message as he continues preaching the Sermon on the Mount. And when he does that, he then actually goes and begins doing miraculous signs and wonders that the kingdom of God has actually come to the land. Joshua moves in, and they start scattering people off, and then they sin, and then other enemies are still left there, and not Jesus. Jesus goes in, and everywhere he goes, the demons shudder and tremble and want to leave, and and sickness is abolished, and, and when Jesus goes in, enemy after enemy disappears. So Matthew is literally showing you that Jesus is walking, he's retracing the steps of Israel, yet when Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. And he's doing it to stand in your place yes. on the cross. There you go. Jesus in my place. Does that make sense? Yes. Questions? Ahaz was evil. Ahaz was evil. My apologies. <laughs> a, thousand la- a thousand lashings. Go with your gut, they say, right? (laughs) Yeah. Questions, comments, anything? Mm. All right, well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you so much for an opportunity um, to just read through the scriptures, to be reminded yet again um, that your word is true, that your word is enduring, that as we read not just the New Testament, but we read the Old Testament, and we see there um, many, many things that continue to reiterate your goodness, your faithfulness, um, that your word is true, that we can read any page of the Scriptures, we can be edified, we can trust in the inerrancy and the infallibility of your word, We can trust that your word to us is able to correct us, to train us in righteousness, that we may be equipped for every good work, and that your word has proven time and time again to be trustworthy and true, that it holds up to scrutiny, that we can look at it, we can look at it deeply, we can turn it over and under, and what we will find there is still truth, that we can be assured that not only is your word true, but that you have sent your Son In our place, condemned He stood. And He did that so that we might be saved from our sins. So that death and hell might not reign over us. We can trust that because Your Word is true. We can trust that because it actually happened. We can be confident even as we leave this place and we encounter no telling how many people we might encounter on a daily basis who do not believe, who even despise Your Word that we can stand on it as a rock and trust that it is true and proclaim its truth with boldness. I pray that you would give us that. Mouths that would be so bold as to proclaim the gospel of hope and peace and love and joy and goodness to people that are currently lost in darkness, that they too might see the light. We pray that you would do that in and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Timothy was just mentioning the people in Afghanistan who are maybe for the first time ever seeing. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, there's there's also things that I worry about too with Afghanistan in particular because so many people in the East see America as a Christian nation, and when when You know as as much as we see like hey the troops the and and politics and stuff like that that's not the church a lot of people in the east don't see it that way they see it as christianity also left us and so that's that's part of my worry too is how how to you know how 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 does the church come in uh, you know to the afghan people or to anybody in the east and kind of say jesus's kingdom is not america Jesus' kingdom is, is wholly other and above, you know that, and so th- I worry about some of those things. H- how will that be perceived, you know, in the in the life of the African people? But certainly something to pray about. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and two, you know, um, yeah. The, when the civil war happened in, um, in um, was it Syria? Civil war in Syria, I think, happened. Yeah, Lebanon. There was, there was a lot of, of migrants that left there and made their way across Europe. And those are areas, the areas they were coming from were areas that we, c- we typically can't get to um, without losing our head um, with the gospel. And they were coming across Europe. And so there are lots of people that were stationed out throughout Europe on the, on the roads And um, they would, I, I heard of one ministry that was throughout Europe that was ministering specifically to Muslims that were coming, that were leaving because of that, because of that civil war. And they would give them water and share the gospel with them. And they would give them a tracker so that they wouldn't get lost. But they could also see how many of those checkpoints that they met along the way. And they said on average about seven times sharing the gospel before the person actually came to faith and believed but part of what led them to that was realizing this is where Islam is leading. This is what is, is happening. Um, it, this civil war is kind of created by those hostilities and things. And so that, so same thing I think for Afghanistan too, is that people are kind of, you know, as they're put under Taliban rule and things like that, as tragic as that is, that it, there's churches that have been planted over the last 20 years in Afghanistan. And there's pastors that are, you know, messaging people in the West that are saying, you know, hey, we're we're trapped. We're we're hiding out in our rooms. We're hiding in different houses or our families aren't together and things like that. Really awful things. But but the point is, Afghanistan really didn't have much of a church presence prior to 20 years ago. You know, of kind of getting out from under Taliban rule. When that happened, a lot of churches started popping up. And so now you've actually got a Christian presence in Afghanistan when the Taliban comes back in. So. There, there still is a hope and, and, and really a prayer for the endurance of Christians like we did on, like we prayed on Sunday. But then also that that um, they, there's a real possibility that the gospel might flourish here, which is crazy to think about, you know, that, that that would be the case. But, you know, there is a Christian presence underneath that kind of totalitarian rule that who knows. So it's definitely something to pray for. Yeah, for sure, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah, for sure, yeah, Mm, yeah, yeah, certainly a a number of different things could be, could be going on, you know, so anyway, you're dismissed, sorry.